Well, how are you all doing? Doing okay? Yeah, okay. Anyone had a good week? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A bit of enthusiasm over there. Uh, how, how about this one? Show, show of hands for this one. Anyone had a really busy week? Anyone? Yeah, that's more like it. I mean, one good week over there, pretty much everyone had a busy week. You see, more often than not, when I ask people how they're doing, invariably, in the first couple of sentences, the word busy will crop up. I mean, there is quite a lot to do. On top of earning a living or gaining a qualification, there are friends to catch up with, family members to call, to uh, appease, there are uh, bits of exercise to snatch in, appointments to make, shopping lists to write, books to read, films to watch, emails to answer, web pages to browse, hobbies to pursue and bills to pay. Uh, and even as I'm speaking, I see kind of, kind of heart sinking as you think of things you've got to be doing. It's like we are busy. The responsibilities and demands we face day to day can just seem overwhelming, which is why uh, I guess there are times for many of us where we've said things like, well, uh, I wish there were just a few more hours in the day. Anyone ever said anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few people have said that. The assumption is that given more time, given more hours, we would accomplish everything we need to do with less stress. But I'd suggest there's actually just as much chance that adding more hours to every day would merely increase the number of hectic hours to plough through. It just adds to the overall sense of busyness. In fact, things have got so very twisted that we can even feel guilty about relaxing. We can think there's something wrong with us if we are not rushed off our feet. If everyone else is putting their hands up saying they're busy and we don't, we kind of feel, oh no, I I should put my hand up as well. I should be busy. Where everyone else is busy, choosing not to be busy can challenge your sense of self-worth. Now, couple of things I've observed in terms of our general busyness. First of all, because a lot of us are so busy, it's very easy to lose any sense of where it's all heading and what it's all for. For many of us, life can feel ever so slightly like being caught in this huge cosmic washing machine where we're buffeted around until the cycle finally finishes and that's it. Everything comes to an abrupt end. Other thing I've observed, especially over the last couple of decades, is the erosion of special time. When I was growing up, many years ago now, Sunday was much more of a special day. But now, virtually all days are alike. And without wishing to sound like an old man reminiscing, Sundays just aren't the same anymore. It's like one day is pretty much like any other day, that the weeks, the months, the years all blend into one. Now, if we come to today's passage in Luke chapter 6 with this modern Western view of time, we will miss the point completely. You see, Jews in Jesus' day had a very different sense of time to what we have today. First of all, they saw it advancing in a linear fashion with a very clear beginning, middle, and end. That they saw themselves as living in the midst of God's long story in which his purpose for creating the world was being worked out down through time, down through history. The story goes something like this. In the beginning, 
God created absolutely everything for our enjoyment and for his glory. He created mountains and oceans and wildlife and fertile land. And he gave men and women responsibility to work the land and care for and look after his creation. He created us as sexual beings and commissioned us to marry and bear children and multiply and populate his creation. He created us as social beings. We were made for relationship with one another, ultimately for relationship with God. And his design in and through all of this was for us to so enjoy all he'd created that our worship for him would be fueled more and more, and that in enjoying all that he had made, we'd find ultimate pleasure in enjoying him the giver of it all. Now, of course, it wasn't long before sin entered the world and started corrupting all that God had made, all that God had created for our good, for our enjoyment. But straight away, God started making promises about how he was going to make everything right again. He promised Eve right there in the beginning that she would have a descendant who would crush Satan. He promised Abraham that one day someone would come who would bless all the nations and bring them all together again. He promised David that one of his descendants would rule the world in righteousness. He promised Joel that there was going to be a day when he would pour out his spirit on all his people. It's like God's people were living with all of these phenomenal promises from God that time was heading towards a glorious climax, that there was coming a day when God would restore his creation. And they viewed their lives very much in the context of this bigger story. Second feature of the Jewish view of time was their grasp of the fact that Having made the world, God rested on the seventh day. And he set in motion a rhythm right in the heart of his creation where his people would have a day each week to rest from their labor, to rest from their work. And this seventh day of rest, the Sabbath day, became closely connected with this wider, this larger hope that God would one day restore all things and bring rest for all people. It acted as a signpost pointing forward into successive ages of time, saying that one day when God's purposes for creation were complete, when they were accomplished, that there'd be a moment of ultimate completion, a time when the the work would finally be done and God with his people would take his rest and would enjoy all that he had achieved forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the Sabbath was the moment during the busyness of life where you got to pause for a moment and lift up your head and get God's perspective and see the onward movement, advance of history from its first foundations to its ultimate resolution. It was a fixed point in the week, every week, where you could put everything else to one side and worship and pray 
and study God's law and celebrate the certain hope that however tough, however busy life is right now, there is better to come. Now, this sense of looking forward was heightened by the structure that God gave his people in which the seventh year, every seventh year, was a year of agricultural rest. The land would lie fallow every seven years and the seven times seven year, the 49th year, was the year of jubilee, the the time for all slaves to be set free, for all debts to be cancelled, for life to get back on track again. These were reminders that God's time was marked out seven days by seven days, week by week, seven years by seven years, half century by half century. In fact, don't know if you've ever noticed this, maybe you haven't, but Matthew, right at the beginning of his gospel, he hints at all of this by arranging the genealogy of Jesus in three groups of 14 generations, that's six, seven, so that Jesus appears on the scene at the seven times seven moment. In a very real sense, he launches the ultimate time of jubilee. It's like the the people in Jesus' day were pondering, they were calculating, they were anticipating, they were longing for the greatest jubilee of them all, the the time when God's Messiah would come and fulfill all of those promises they've been living with, the promise to Eve, to Abraham, to David, to Joel, to others. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus appears on the scene and proclaims the time has come. Remember how he stood up in Nazareth, his hometown, and announced the the year of God's favour, the year of ultimate jubilee. This was the time, this was the moment the whole world had been waiting for. All that being said, now and only now can we begin to understand just how very profound today's passage really is. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. Now, On the surface, this all seems slightly innocuous. It seems pretty innocent. But what had happened over the years was that a whole host of different rules and regulations have been created by the religious leaders to try and safeguard the Sabbath. And according to the letter of their law, the disciples here are guilty of reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food on the Sabbath day. And it just so happened that some of these religious leaders were spying on Jesus' disciples at that very moment. Verse 2, some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus replied, haven't you read in the Scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. Just to explain, Jesus is referring back to a story that the Pharisees would have been very familiar with. His point is that he and his men are in pretty much the same position as David and his men had been when, in this particular instance, they were hungry and ate some bread in the temple that really they weren't supposed to touch. They were an exception to the normal rule. And so is he. Normally, only priests could eat these sacred loaves, but David claimed the right to do so. Why? Presumably because he was the rightful king of Israel. Samuel earlier had anointed him as a child, proclaimed him to be king, but but Saul was still on the throne at that point. And at the time of this story, David was leading this small ragtag bunch of followers, keeping out of Saul's way, waiting for the time when his kingship would come true. And like David, Jesus has been anointed as Israel's king in an ultimate sense. He he too is waiting for the time when his kingship will be realised, it will be true. He, He too is on the move with his small group of followers. So Jesus here is comparing himself with David. But he goes even further than that. Verse 5, Jesus added, the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. The fact that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting for all these centuries, means that he has the unique right to regulate, to decide what happens on the Sabbath. So, the actions of Jesus aren't the real issue here. Luke's not really all that interested in dealing with the whole question of whether or not we keep the Sabbath. The real issue is the authority of Jesus. Does Jesus reveal God's way and have authority over it, or doesn't he? It's not so much about what Jesus does, it's all about who he is. Next story rams the point home. Verse 6, on another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with a deformed hand, come, stand in front of everyone. And so the man came forward. And Jesus said to his critics, I've got a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? I don't want you to miss the irony here. Jesus is arguing that a failure to act and heal the man's hand would be doing evil, while all the time those who were looking to safeguard the law were plotting 
evil. I mean, how messed up is that? And then comes the crucial moment. Who will God the Father vindicate? Who will God the Father side with here? The religious leaders or Jesus? It's like, if Jesus fails to heal the man, then his claim to be Lord over the Sabbath amounts to nothing. But if this man gets healed, then we'd better sit up and take notice. Verse 10, Jesus looked around at them one by one and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were full of wonder and celebrated with great joy. No, at this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. They're angry because Jesus seems to have gone out of his way to trample all over the normal Sabbath regulations. They're furious because of what Jesus does, and their fury blinds them to the truth of who Jesus really is. And as a result, they miss the point. Now, most sermons I've heard on this passage have focused in on Jesus attacking legalism. The Sabbath had become so shrouded, so wrapped up in laws and regulations that Jesus came to sweep it all away. But I'd suggest that is way too trivial an understanding of what's going on here. It's missing the point every bit as much as the religious leaders whose small-minded obsession with how they thought things should be done meant they failed to see that Jesus is Lord of all. Remember what we saw earlier? The Sabbath was like this signpost pointing forward to God's promised future. And Jesus here is announcing that the future to which the signpost had been pointing had now arrived in the present in him. He had come to set in motion the restoration of all things. He was the Son of God with authority proclaiming that the time was now fulfilled. God's kingdom was coming. God's kingdom was arriving. The time had come. Listen, the fact that Jesus is here changes everything. Changes everything. Isn't that what we saw last week when Johnny so helpfully unpacked the significance of fasting? Remember how Jesus insisted that the wedding guests can't fast while the bridegroom is still at the party? Something new is happening. A new time has been launched. Different things are now appropriate. And it's the same when it comes to the Sabbath. Seeing Jesus for who he is completely transforms our view of time. For starters, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. There's 
a very real sense in which Jesus is now our rest. All things we strive for in life, significance, worth, love, meaning, purpose, acceptance, joy, forgiveness, hope, all these things, we busy ourselves, we invest our time and our money, our energy, pursuing, trying to find the answers. It's all found in Jesus. And so, every day is a potential Sabbath for us, if we use our time to press into Jesus. It's not about just dutifully doing our quiet time every day in an attempt to please Him. No! It's recognizing that ultimate rest is found in Him. And if that's true, then we're going to do everything we can to get to know Him better, whether that's through reading His Word, speaking to Him, fasting, obeying Him, spending time with others who know Him better than we do. The fact that Jesus is here with us means that we can now find rest every day. It's like every day is Sabbath for us. Second thing about seeing Jesus for who He is, is it gives us a very, very different perspective on life. You see, it's not all about us. We're part of something much, much bigger. Think about it. Just suppose, just suppose for a moment that the ancient Jewish story of a God making the world calling a people to himself. Suppose this story were true. And suppose this God had a purpose for his world and his people that had now reached the point, the moment of fulfillment. And suppose that this purpose had taken human form, and that the person in question was going about doing the things that spoke of God's kingdom breaking out on earth, healing the sick, raising the dead, driving out demons, forgiving sin, so that the whole earth would be filled, as one of the Old Testament prophets put it, the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And suppose this person, God become man, spoke in terms of living a sinless life and dying in the place of a sinful world, taking the just punishment for our sin and making a way for all people, regardless of tongue and tribe and race, making a way for all people to be part of His people, His community, His family. And suppose this all played out as promised, and for good measure that he also rose again from the dead, proving he really has broken the power of sin and hell and death. And suppose he said he was going to leave for a while. He was going to leave to allow his people to take the good news of what he had done to the very ends of the earth, advancing his kingdom through continuing to heal the sick 
and raise the dead and drive out demons and telling the way that sin could now be forgiven. And suppose he said that one day he would return to wrap it all up and restore heaven and earth to its intended perfection and reign with his people forever and ever and ever. And suppose he invited you to be one of his, his people, to be a part of his big story. Wouldn't that change your view of life? Wouldn't that change your whole perspective? Wouldn't that lift you out of just living for yourself? Wouldn't that give you a very clear sense of purpose? and hope. Listen, we are living in God's story, and we know how it's all going to end. Doesn't that have an impact on how you view your work, and your friendships, and your family life, what you do with your money, how you cope with problems and disappointments? Doesn't Grasping this changed everything. You know, for generations now, the church has kind of duped believers into thinking that effectively Jesus came to teach people how to get to heaven. It's like, we know we're saved, and we celebrate that, and we know we're going to be okay when we die, but for many of us, that still feels like a long way away, and we're not so sure what what it's all going to be like, so we perhaps don't celebrate that quite as much as we could or should. And between now and then, we, we kind of know we should be trying our hardest to live how God wants us to live. But that's missing the point. Jesus didn't come to tell people that God was in heaven and that at death they could leave earth behind and go and be with him there. That wasn't his message. His message was that God was now taking charge right here on earth, and that we should pray for this to happen more and more, and that we should invest, have a long we've got on earth, in advancing his kingdom, in the short and certain hope that Jesus will return one day to complete this restoration of all things. We've got to get out of this individualistic mindset where we are the center of the universe. We we must see our lives in the context of God's big story. Got to grasp that while we still have life, his purpose for creating the world is now being worked out through us. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you what that looks like for you. What I want you to do is to go away and think about this. I want you to Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your family. I I, I want you to pray and ask God to show you what part He has for you to play in His big story. I, I, I want you to look for ways to advance God's kingdom as you 
go to school, as you go to college, as you go to work, as you spend time with your friends, as you pursue your hobbies and your interests in your street, in your neighbourhood, in your city, in your country, to the very ends of the earth. And it's going to look different for all of us. It's not one size fits all, but there is a part for each one of us to play. Seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing our lives as part of God's big story, it does give us a very different perspective on life. And then third, seeing Jesus for who he is does free us to enjoy one day off in seven. Later on, Jesus is going to ask a great question. He asks, was the man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath for the man? What Jesus is doing here is he's getting into the heart of the commands of God. Were they given for us to obey as a means of earning our way to God or were they given for our good? And what Jesus so brilliantly starts unpacking here is that none of the commands of God, including this six and one rhythm, this day of Sabbath every week, none of these commands was ever intended to oppress us. Quite the opposite. They were meant to set us free. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions about God's people is we're these sexually repressed, closed-minded, miserable men and women who long to destroy anyone having a good time. That was never the message of Jesus. Jesus comes along and goes, no, 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 I'm leading you into joy. Do you know how much better marriage works when you're rested? Do you know how much more patient you are with your kids when you're rested? Do you know how much more efficient you are in your work when you're rested? The heart of the law is depth of living, that the law is tapping us into how things are at the very deepest level of the universe. But you're taking the Sabbath and you're making it chains. You've completely removed the heart of it. Seriously? Don't eat on the Sabbath? Don't heal a man's hand on the Sabbath? Are you kidding me? This isn't the spirit of the Sabbath law. whole point of the Sabbath is rest. Rest! I've got it all under control. I'm Lord. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So you don't need to keep working. Receive the Sabbath. Receive a day off every week as a blessing. It's for your good. It is providing you with what I know you need. Maybe you struggle with this. I want to ask you, if you do, what's stopping you taking a day off every week? What's stopping you doing this? Might it be vanity, the long hours, the busy schedule, the full diary, 
all speaks of importance. And so we charge around like headless chickens, never having the time to stop and actually question the basic principle. Maybe it's vanity. Maybe it's laziness. Listen, we don't have to give in to every demand and approach on our time. We don't. To allow other people to dictate our diary is actually being lazy. If we're going to take a day off, we we need to take control of our lives and decide for ourselves what we'll do and what we won't do. Ultimately, I think it all boils down to a lack of trust in God. It's like, I know God wants me to have a day off, but what does he know? I mean, I'm, I'm never going to hit that deadline. I'm never going to pass my exams. I'm never going to get it all done if I take a day of rest. I mean, get real. You need to get real. The reality is, God's in control. And we can trust him. Just listen to these words from Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. The bottom line is, we serve an incredibly generous God who doesn't shortchange us on time. And in His grace, He gives us rest. The challenge is, do we trust Him enough to take it? Do we believe in our heart of hearts that He is Lord of all? Do we believe that what He says is right? And that if we submit to His Lordship, if we follow what He says, that things will work out for our good. You know, we're touching on deep issues here. Who controls our time? Is it me? Is it my boss? Is it my relatives? Is it the latest deadline? Or is it God? By keeping God's day of rest, we proclaim loud and clear to ourselves and to the world that God rules our lives. If he is Lord, he is Lord of our time.